In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Our gospel today is framed by two groups of people coming to Jesus. The Pharisees come with a question and the children come to Jesus for a blessing. The Pharisees' question is not open or searching. Their question is rather a trap. It's replete with irony, tinged perhaps with some cynicism and certainly dismissal. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The children come to Jesus. They're brought to Jesus by their moms and their dads. They have no agenda except to receive Jesus' blessing. In Judaism, a blessing is a pronouncement of life. I got some definitions of that. A gathering of energy and unlocking a life source, a conduit for physical and spiritual potential. Jesus' blessing is a tangible expression of God's unconditional love and his glorious life. And in Judaism, of course, a primary purpose of marriage is procreation, having children, the two lives coming together, create life, and the meaning of the name of the first mother in the Bible, Eve, is she who gives life. The woman is the giver of life, and more on that in just a bit. Um, and as I was thinking about this, the giving of life, marriage is intended to be life-giving in every way, a relationship that the Lord Jesus himself inhabits and, blessing, and blesses. For mom and dad, for the children. And father and mother bring their children to Jesus here and are also themselves encouraged to come to Jesus as children. In doing so, Jesus reveals the disposition of God toward all his sons and daughters, his desire to bless them and enfold every one of them in his embrace. Um, that is the essence of my sermon. If you want to stop listening now, you can. <laughs> um, but I, th I think I need to open the text up just a little bit more. And these are challenging, challenging texts. And if you raise an eyebrow, um, please bear with me. Um, and I hope that you're at, by the end your eyebrows won't be raised so high they're off your head, but that they will be at rest. We shall see. So, uh, unlike the children, the Pharisees do not want to come into the arms of Jesus. They, they hold him at arm's length. Uh, even as their view of marriage was one in, in which a man can, can, can keep a woman at arm's length. Uh, in her commentary on Mark, Mary Healy writes that the Pharisees asked Jesus a question for which they already knew the answer. Uh, they knew the law of Moses permitted divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Um, it spells it out. However, it, it wasn't a command there. It was, it was rather a concession. Um, a husband could dismiss his wife by writing her a bill of divorce. A bill of divorce relinquished uh, his legal claims on his wife. Uh, and this freed her from any obligations to him. And it allowed her to marry someone else. And this provision also provided some legal protection to a woman whose husband had spurned her uh, in a society, of course, where it was unthinkable for a woman to live on her own. The purpose of the bill of divorce was not to authorize divorce 
but merely to limit its consequences for the woman. So this consequence, this concession rather, gives an out for the man and it protects the woman. And there was, there was however, no, no corresponding legal right for a woman to divorce her husband. And the rabbis argued at great length about what gave men grounds for divorce, which ranged from something big like adultery to the smallest of infractions. Any indecency, which might have included not cooking the lamb to his liking. So Jesus then responds to the Pharisees by telling them that their hardness of heart has blinded them to the deeper meaning of marriage as given earlier in the Torah in Genesis. The Bible, Jesus tells all of us, is not a law book. It's a story book. And read the story well, live into that story, and, and you'll soon discover you're not living by the law at all. You're alive in the story. And what a story. The Bible is a marriage story. Begins and ends with a wedding. The story of one woman and man discovering one another in a, in a private garden. And, and that crescendos to this glorious image in revelation of an entire city, an entire society, population, the new Jerusalem, the people of God, dressed as a bride for her husband, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we pick up this story in Genesis 2, and I say pick up because the story, the prequel, actually starts in Genesis 1. Um, and we go to Genesis 1 to discover the genesis of marriage. And God announces his project to create a human being in his image. And it's very interesting how, the, how it's stated there. God creates a human being in his image by creating him, singular, male and female. He created them, plural. And however we interpret this, and I've read several commentaries here, including from, Jew, from Jewish scholars, uh, a human being made in God's image is union of both male and female. One rather imaginative interpretation uh, that I read says, Adam is indeed one and with a feminine side. And when, when Eve is created for, uh, from him, he, he feels a genuine sense of, of loss of his, of his feminine side. And so what happens next then is, is the first lost and found of the Bible. That, that transcendent moment when, uh, when Adam sees Eve and, and sees her and finds not just what he lost, but he finds so much more. Not the feminine version of himself, but a woman standing in front of, of him whom, whom he is then able to receive into himself. The two become one, not just physically, but, but in every way that it means to be human. And the scene of Adam Naming the animals is meant to underscore this. It's, it's not so much uh, about Adam coming up with creative names for, for that huge thing with a trunk or you know, that tall thing with a, with a long neck or that pink thing with a snout. Um, endearing as that all is, it is meant to show that these animals are foreign to Adam, external to him. They can't complete him. They can't make him whole. And What's so interesting in Genesis 1, when those animals are created and given the command to increase and multiply, they are not there called male and female. Male and female are more than, a, than biological, physical traits of existence that we have in common with animals. Male and female are what differentiate us from animals. 
The creation of man is consummated in marriage whereby one become two, which become one. And male is not simply equal with, with female. Man is one with woman. And of course, as the story would have it, this Genesis story is not complete without its sequel in Genesis 3. And that's the moment when Adam's eyes, which, as you can recall the story, have been opened to the enormity of sin, the shame of nakedness, the acrimony, the blame, the curse, all of it. His eyes and Eve's eyes, they're open to one another. And Adam sees even a new light, and it is the light of grace, of mercy, by which Adam actually sees his wife, and she becomes more real, more particular, concrete. And as they look at each other, dare I say, they become more human to each other. And you know when this happens? After the fall, after they have sinned. The beautiful irony of sin is that it reveals our humanity and our deep need for grace. It's a microcosm of the gospel. So the verse says, Now the man called his, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Whereas in Genesis 2, Adam gives his wife a generic name, woman. He now gives her a proper name, Eve. Whereas in Genesis 2, woman is taken from man, is derivative from man. Adam now calls Eve the mother of all life. He attributes to her something greater than he is. Adam has valued Eve as an individual, and he sets her value above himself. And the glorious thing, this all happens after the fall. I wish we were, what had been recounted also, what, what Eve might have said to Adam. We don't know. But they are one and they are also the other. In the first account, woman and man. In the second account, woman from man. And here after the fall, Eve is the honored other, different from Adam and still one with him. And this sounds like a relationship that we do not fully understand, but we have to talk and preach about and that we live within. It is the Godhead, the Trinity, tri-oneness. So marriage, it humanizes us, changes us, helps us grow into our humanity as we covenant to stay together, love each other, to engage with one another, and not simply endure each other until death does us part. However, you don't have to be married to experience the fullness of relationship. This is because we all come to Jesus. We enter the kingdom, the family of God, not as a woman or man, mom or dad, married or unmarried, but as a child. Each of us is a child of God, embracing that relationship with Jesus. And this is Jesus who himself was not married. Jesus who lowered himself to a status a little lower than the angels, our psalm in Hebrew says. Jesus who became a human being. The new Adam, who himself comes from woman without man, yet is man, born of God and woman. That's an awful lot to take in. We don't fully understand it. Who is this guy, the disciples say of Jesus on that boat in the sea when he calms the storm and they are terrified? I don't know how to love him, sings Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. It's extra biblical, of course, but there is truth there. 
I don't know how to love him. Of course not. How can we possibly completely and fully know and love Jesus, who is God and man, servant of mankind and ruler of the cosmos, crucified, dead, buried, and risen, the second Adam, who somehow incorporates into his personhood Eve also. He must if he is fully man, fully human, and by which Jesus, by which God draws all humanity into himself, the all in all who is whole, complete, who does not need us and has become one of us and thereby loves us. I don't know how to love him. Indeed. So, let Jesus love me. Let Jesus love you. Let Jesus love all of us. Jesus who can't be pegged and identified as this, that, or the other. The fullness of God loving each one of us. One thing I've sorely missed at All Souls in these past uh, almost two years now is our, is our catechesis. Uh, we did have that, that for a time being that wonderful podcast, of course, and some of you uh, uh, shared in that and where we found hope, uh, and uh, that was wonderful. And we had that, that relaxed and lovely show and tell in, in the backyard, front yard. Um, but the catechesis, as, as we used to have it, that was a time, uh, not only when, when, it's a time when we, not only when we are teaching each other, but we're also bringing ourselves, and, and as much as possible, our true selves to one another, to this community. And one of my favorite catechesis is catechesis, um, and the one that made me the most wonderfully uncomfortable was Matt Gimmel's open-hearted talk on the grace of being single. You remember that one? Um, in which he first he addressed law and grace, and he first addressed the law, the law that's just instinctively and, and unthinkingly placed on single people as if being, there was something inherently wrong with being single. Um, and, and so Matt talked about the law, and then he had to say this about marriage. Too often, he said, single people are excluded by married people, especially in the church. Marriage is off, often is a fencing off of a relationship from the world, from others. And then he cited uh, that terrific writer, um, Ross Duthod, who calls this deep familial selfishness. And I would add, there can be a fencing off within a marriage, too. All of us who are married know that oh too well. Married people can also be isolated and lonely in their marriages. And then Matt moved to grace. Singleness, he said, reminds me of my need for love. This is often a bitter grace, but it is a grace nonetheless. And it reminds me that in the church I am family, that the Christian community of which I am part is a family. He then mentioned several ways in which this community had become a family to him. And he said, when I receive invitations to share time and meals with families in the church, especially if I'm not treated as some special guest, but as a family member who is allowed to see messes. This is what all of us need. Happily, unhappily married, married with or without children, divorced, remarried, single. If I missed a category, just fill it in. We need to help each other. We need to have each other's backs. The collect of the day says, keep, uh, keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in continual godliness, the household, the home, your church, in continual godliness. And so Matt brought us to where the Bible brings us this morning, a vision of marriage much bigger than the nuclear family. This is a vision of marriage as a microcosm of Christian community, the family of God, a sanctuary, a harbor, a safe place, a festival, a feast for everyone, for all, 
for all the souls. This is a vision of heaven. This is a vision of home.